This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on 90.7 KPFK, talking about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. Today, we'll talk about the upsurge in COVID-19, and in our News You Can Use segment, Ella Taylor talks about the new L.A. noir detective show Perry Mason, and about the wonderful HBO series My Brilliant Friend. It's about two girls growing up poor in Naples in the 50s. Also, later in this hour, Black Lives Matter and Sandra Bland's was one of them. This week is the fifth anniversary of the death of Sandra Bland in a Texas jail, July 13th, 2015. What happened to Sandra Bland? To understand that, you have to begin way before she died. Debbie Nathan will report on the life as well as the death of Sandra Bland. But first, the United States accounts for 4% of the world's population, but 25% of the people who've come down with COVID-19 and 25% of the people who've died from it. How did the richest country in the world, the country that spends the most on health care, become the sickest? Harold Meyerson has been thinking about that. Of course, he's editor-at-large of The American Prospect and a regular contributor to the LA Times op-ed page. We reached him today at home in our nation's capital. Harold, welcome back. Always good to be here, John. So our question is, how come COVID-19 infections are rising fast in, you know, the land of the free and the home of the brave? Some say it's the individualism in American culture. And I don't think there's any other advanced country where people you know, get mad at you when you ask them to wear a mask in a supermarket. And I know there definitely isn't any other advanced country where demonstrators with guns invade state capitals to block public health measures. What do you think explains this twisted form of American exceptionalism? Well, I mean, you know, the, the, the proximate, you know, uh, low-level cause, since he's a low-level guy, is Donald Trump. But as your question uh, suggests, there are other causes too. Certainly American individualism, but American individualism has been politicized in a way that's anything but individual. You, re- you referenced the, uh, uh, the militia types who turned out at state capitals when Democratic governors were closing things down. Now that the epicenter of COVID-19, however, is the Sun Belt, is the red states of the South, and now that Republican governors, against their will, are being compelled to close things down. You don't see those militias, which suggests to me that there's, there's more here than just simply a, a political double standard, which there obviously is. In a sense, this American individualism really has become a kind of group individualism, a kind of groupthink individualism. It's, it's the, now the creed of the don't tread on me crowd, but it's really a kind of a don't tread on us crowd. And the us is the uh, sort of more extreme wing of the Trump base. It's uh, largely white. It's largely male. It's, it, it's a whole subset of, uh, of people that we actually see in other countries, too. I mean, there's a right, you know, a nationalist white right rising in in some european countries certainly recently you know germany has found these folks are are in its armed services which is the last place 
you would want to find uh, you would want to find these folks. But in America, it's it's just much more pronounced because we have been waging what is called a cultural war. Increasingly, it's simply a war of white racists against not only minorities, but pretty much anyone who isn't a white racist. And so, you know, individualism has been claimed as a political banner by that wing of the right. And that wing of the right doesn't like masks, doesn't like uh, uh, closures, you know, so that's one level of it. And another level is just our completely screwed up medical system, uh, uh, the absence of an adequate public health mentality and, you know, institutions you know, and then when you add uh, a president on top who is more or less uh, averse to uh, any serious solutions, and you get the fact that a nation with 4% of the world's people has 25% of the world's people uh, who uh, are sick from COVID-19 and 25% who die from COVID-19. And here's another stunning example of what we're talking about. South Carolina, Norway, and Ireland have about the same population. 5 million people. If we look at new cases of COVID-19 in the past two weeks, Norway, 187 cases, Ireland, 148 cases, South Carolina, 17,000 cases. This is from Rachel Maddow, and it's stunning. And of course, South Carolina is the hotbed of the Confederacy, which takes us to slavery, the legacy of slavery, and where we stand today with Black Lives Matter. Absolutely. I mean, the, uh, part of the legacy of slavery is that we have never had universal social programs, because even when Franklin Roosevelt was endeavoring to get Social Security and various other programs, labor rights, through the Congress, he had to exclude the categories that were dominated by African Americans. And th th this kind of split sensibility has always been uh, a causal element of the, the skimpiness and the inadequacy and the lack of universal programs, including universal health care. And, and so you would uh, expect both that groups historically omitted from such programs would be more susceptible to the disease. And we do know that African-Americans and Latinos uh, have been uh, contracting COVID-19 at far higher rates uh, than whites, but also that we don't have the kind of just generally robust universal programs for health or anything else. So we don't have paid sick days, paid sick leave in, uh, in, in red states or across the nation generally. Uh, and, you know, that is a legacy of an unwillingness to have universal programs, and that relates to our, uh, our original sin, our, our original sin of slavery, which required an ideology of white racism to justify it, but which has cursed us in places like South Carolina more than others, you know, with this kind of, uh, th this kind of rate of illness. I don't want to let Trump off the hook here too quickly, Trump has been, of course, the, the leader of Back to Work, Reopen America. Why do you think he's been so determined to reopen businesses across America? Why not be the hero of a healthy America? Well, I mean, if you'll recall, before COVID-19 descended on us, his uh, main uh, campaign uh, point, his claim to being uh, the, the, the guy who should reelect for president, was the level of the economy. 
And uh, it, it's hard to see, you know, just knowing what we know about Trump, that anything other than economic metrics matter to him. There's, there's not been much evidence that the, the welfare of, and health of individuals matters to him, not from an administration that uh, separates little kids from their parents at the border. So, you know, the, the only metric he takes seriously, and, and this is in his niece's new book, too, is that of uh, individual wealth. He uh, was running on the fact that the Dow was higher uh, than, uh, than it had ever been. And, and so the only criteria that, you know, he can e- even imagine are economic criteria. So he's desperate to uh, re- return people to their workplace, even if it kills them. And we, we've seen that in particular in his uh, wanting, uh, you know, meatpacking plants to, uh, to stay open, which uh, is, is a reflection of his individual diet but also of his utter indifference to the fact that these are clearly about the most dangerous places to be working uh, during the pandemic. Okay, he wants to be able to claim that he's put America back to work, there's big job gains, and therefore he should be reelected. But, but why not require masks, masks at work? Wider use of masks would be one way to limit infections while reopening at least some businesses. What is it about masks with him? Well, I think I think here he is actually the tribune of of the uh, uh, the folks we were talking about earlier. Masks suggest you know the elevation of the "don't tread on me" mentality over the "don't breathe on me" mentality, <laughs> which should be. The main uh, uh, goal of public policy right now is don't breathe on me because, among other things, until people aren't breathing on other people, we are not going to get healthy and we're not going to get the economy back. But there's this sort of irreducible element of individual autonomy and this crazy anti anti uh, any regulation from the state mentality. So, you know, I mean, it'll be interesting to see where we go with the uh, Republican convention in uh, uh, Jacksonville, Florida, which he demands to have and demands to have as maskless as possible, just as his rally at Mount Rushmore was as maskless as, as he could make it. It's, it's an insult to you know, male individual, individuality and uh, virility and God knows what else, apparently, if, if you have a mask. But it also now has this tribal political significance. It's, it's a way of saying, I'm with Trump. And so Trump isn't about to abandon one of the metrics of being with Trump. Yeah, it's uh, based on this old Republican idea that government is trying to take away our freedoms and, you know, they're not going to they're not going to take away my freedom to not wear a mask if I don't want to. It's it's this kind of crazy anti-government and individualism run amok. But I mean, where when it not only runs amok, but runs into disaster, obviously, is at a, t- a time when there's a deadly infectious disease out there. It's just crazy. So it looks like he's not going to be able to run on putting America back to work and restoring uh, the economy. What else has he got? Well, at Mount Rushmore, he said, uh, they're trying to tear down our monuments and defame our heroes. He's talking here, of course, about the defenders of slavery and treason. Uh, I wonder if how many people are going to vote for that. Even in the state of Mississippi, the state legislature has voted to take the stars and bars out of their state flag. Mississippi was the last place to have a Confederate symbol in its state flag. Is 
trying to tear down, quote, our monuments? How many, for how many people are these our monuments this coming November? Well, if Trump were running for election in 1910, it would be a relatively high percentage of the nation. It's 2020, and it's a much smaller share of the nation. And, you know, that's to a certain degree reflected in the polling, which has him losing uh, by now double-digit margins to Joe Biden. It's, it's an appeal to, to the base of his base, as it were, <laughs> or the superstructure of his base, whatever, whatever the, where the statue is on the pedestal. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, it's a de- very much a declining share of, of the nation, of the electorate, and, uh, you know, I think there are a lot of more dispassionate Republican strategists who know that, but are beginning to despair of his getting off this because he doesn't have very many, uh, you know, among other things, look, it's not like he's outlined any plans for the, his second term. He's, he's beyond, he's beyond or beneath, I should say, he's beneath policy thinking. He, that, that, that's not what he does. He simply needs to affirm himself. And the way he saw himself affirmed uh, has been things like, the level of the Dow, uh, the, you know, the, the, the few number of immigrants let in, and now I guess the number of uh, Confederate statues he has, he has managed to save. Uh, those are, you know, you get diminishing returns, though, from, uh, uh, from, from those appeals. So you made this crucial point uh, earlier that it's, it's really the legacy of slavery and the presence of racism that has not just divided the working class, but made it so much harder to establish universal health care, the other things that advanced countries have, like uh, paid, paid sick leave. This indeed has been our past, a, a working class uh, divided by racism. Is that our future? Well, I think the most hopeful thing uh, you, you, you can see today is the entirely multiracial nature of the demonstrations that began with the murder of George Floyd in reaction thereto. And, and it, it's not just the, the multiracial uh, demonstrations, but the polling that shows heavy public support for Black Lives Matter, beginning to see really significant mainstream support for a kind of non-literal uh, form of defunding the police, at least shrinking departments, demilitarizing departments, assigning tasks that have been assigned to the police to other agencies with, without uh, the potential of using violence, you're, you're really seeing, I think, what could be a hinge point in American history in which uh, finally uh, a decisive share of uh, American whites are, have awakened to the ordeal of being an American black and the, the recognition that a lot of things need to change. That's on top of, I, I think, uh, also uh, a, a mass awareness of the uh, hugely unequal nature, not just racially, but otherwise, of the American economy. Those two things combined certainly have the potential for transforming a lot of American life and a lot of American institutions assuming Democrats win big in November, and assuming this kind of pressure for racial justice and economic justice doesn't wane. So if Trump is unlikely to be able to win by claiming he's put America back to work, if he's unlikely to win by defending, quote, our monuments and, quote, our heroes, he does have at least one other 
possibility, and that is the Electoral College, which, of course, gave him the victory last time. The Supreme Court took up the question of the Electoral College uh, this week, and there's that raises a new, the age-old question of how are we going to get out from under the Electoral College, the most undemocratic thing in our democracy. I've always been interested in the idea that the state's could agree that they will all cast their electoral votes in favor of the candidate who came in first in the national popular vote. A lot of states have already agreed to do that. They happen to be the Democratic states. Is there a better way to get majority rule in America? Well, I mean, that way may be the the most uh, available expedient. So far, 15 states and the District of Columbia have pledged to do that when a majority of states have pledged to do that. Uh, I think the Democrats would have to win control of a lot more states uh, uh, in 2020 and maybe 2022 for the method you described to uh, take effect. There there are other other alternatives. Constitutional scholar and dean of the uh, UC Berkeley Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky, proposed in an article for The Prospect a couple years ago that subsequent amendments to the Constitution, uh, the Fifth Amendment, the Fourteenth Amendment, prescribing uh, equal treatment under law, could be used to bring a case against the Electoral College that even though it's in Article Two of the Constitution, subsequent amendments make it unconstitutional. You know, that would require, you know, I, I think uh, a, a lot more liberals on the Supreme Court to uh, affirm what I think is a, a, a very smart, shrewd argument uh, by uh, your friend and mine, Erwin Chemerinsky. And then there is simply uh, the prospect of a constitutional amendment to repeal that section of Article 2 of the Constitution. But for a, a constitutional amendment to be enacted, three quarters of the states, right now that would be 37 states, need to uh, ratify that change. And since the Electoral College disproportionately empowers smaller states, it's, it's not at all clear that there are 37 states that would go along with this. Now, if there were really progressive governments in 37 states, I think that would be the case. Uh, to put it mildly, at this juncture, we are not there yet. Uh, so there are various means of attack against the Electoral College. But keep in mind two things. Uh, First of all, it was put into the Constitution right at the end of the 1787 Convention, partly because at the time, the idea of, you know, was that electors uh, might actually know something about the various presidential uh, candidates, whereas the the public, which wasn't getting any news in those days to speak of, uh, not in a timely fashion and not in any detail, would not. That was the, the basic anti-democratic idea of the Electoral College, yeah. that the voters are kind of yeah. not qualified to pick right. the president. So we need to gather this group of wiser, more knowledgeable people to do it instead. It's a basically anti-democratic idea. Yes, and it, that is, and it's augmented by uh, the fact that uh, the southern states were uh, concerned that if the president were elected by popular vote, there were more uh, voters who could vote uh, in in northern states uh, than there were in the southern states, which were heavily populated by people who couldn't vote, not just women, but also the slaves. And uh, therefore, by giving the states a distinct role uh, in uh, electing a president, which is what the Electoral College does, 
it would diminish the possibility of an anti-slavery uh, president taking office. So it, it, it like uh, like almost all of our problems, it's it's rooted in our original sin, and it's rooted in the uh, anti-popular, uh, anti-democratic sentiment uh, of of even constitutional drafters who weren't from the South. Harold Meyerson, readimitprospect.org. Harold, it's always great to have you on the show. Great to be here, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Now it's time to talk again about TV and the age of the virus. This is News You Can Use, a regular feature of Trump Watch on KPFK in Los Angeles. Of course, we still can't go to the movie theaters, and so we're still watching stuff at home. And for some advice, we turn again to Ella Taylor. Of course, she's a longtime film critic and writer whose work has appeared in the New York Times, the LA Weekly, and at NPR.org. We reached her today at home in Santa Monica. Ella, welcome back. Good afternoon, John. Happy to be with you. Well, today we want to start with L.A. Noir, police corruption, rich people and poor people, white people and black people, class and race in the City of Angels. That sounds like the new Perry Mason on HBO. It does indeed, and uh, of which th uh, there are three episodes now up at HBO, but it's a much longer series, and uh, one that I liked. I was a Raymond Burr fan in my youth, for both for Perry Mason and for Ironside, in which he was in a wheelchair. I loved them at the time, and just for research fun, I went back and watched an old Perry Mason episode, which is called The Case of the Notorious Nun. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that the new Perry Mason might as well be called Fred Smith Jr. <laughs> for all its likeness and resemblance to the stately, slightly plodding and very, very calm criminal defense lawyer that uh, Perry Mason was in the original series. Uh, I don't know if you remember the sepulchral score. I can practically sing it all these years later. <laughs> this one is set in 1932, um, and uh, Matthew Reese, who uh, of the Americans, a very good actor, who in real life has a very lovely Welsh accent, plays a very extreme version of his role in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, um, in which he's a, a guy with a serious anger management problem, uh, which is resolved by Fred Rogers. Here, he is a private investigator, not a, cr a criminal defense lawyer. He has five o'clock shadow, and he's wearing what you Americans call a fedora, what we call a trilby. He is basically a physical and emotional wreck with a very serious anger management problem. He is suffering from what we would today call PTSD from World War I, uh, in which he was both decorated and dishonored. Um, he's divorced and he never sees his son who's on the other coast. He gets his new ties 
from the morgue. <laughs> and he has a love interest who is sexy, bright, and uh, has his number completely. I must say that I found, although Reese is a marvelous actor, he really is just terrific, I found the characterization a little hackneyed because we've, by now we've seen so many characters like this. And he is on the case um, of a botched baby kidnapping in the Angel's flight trolley, which they have beautifully dressed, and of which more are none in which uh, things go terribly wrong and the, the hapless, possibly hapless parents of this baby find it dead and with his eyes stitched upwards, which I thought was a little superfluous. Um, these days, everybody wants to up the ante on violence and brutality and gruesome images, and it, this one did not seem to me earned uh, at all. I'm okay with scream violence if, it, if it's appropriate in the setting. Um, his sidekicks uh, are his boss, who's wonderfully played by John Lithgow in a John Bolton moustache, but he has a slight air of Alec Guinness about him. And he's on this, his career is on the skids, and he really wants this case um, to work out. Della Street, um, who was in the original series, was played by Barbara Hale and was basically uh, Raymond Burr's mother. <laughs> <laughs> Here is wonderfully replaced, uh, played by Juliette Rylance, who is the adoptive daughter of the wonderful British actor Mark Rylance. And she is a pistol here. She's no kind of, she doesn't want to be anybody's mother, even though they keep telling her to make the tea and pay her very little. And she plays an active role um, in uh, trying to solve the case. His partner is, is wonderfully played by Shay Wiggum, who has one of the great faces. And the Paul Drake character this time is played by an African-American policeman, played by Chris Chalk, and is actually a black policeman. Uh, and that's the sort of racism quotient of the series. It does feel a little bit shoehorned in. Yeah, I thought the, the, the black cop is just a total cliche. He's the, the noble victim caught between his own sense of justice and the racist uh, uh, supervisors who require him to turn his back on all that is, uh, all that is wrong. Not a very imaginative idea. No, and it's a shame because Chris Chalk is a very good actor uh, and you somehow expect, it, expect more and maybe we'll get more in the subsequent episodes when they go up. There is also um, the case sort of fans out into a sort of who, who's guilty could be anybody scenario, including the parents. But there is a wonderful turn by the talented actress Tatiana Maslani who plays... Sister Alice, who is the putative head of an evangelical megachurch, as we would call it today. She's based on the, the charismatic evangelical Amy Semple McPherson. You know, I think that's the most kind of original twist in this. I, I don't remember other films about detectives in L.A. in the 30s or 40s that have Amy Semple McPherson in them. Well, that was the case of the notorious nun, John. <laughs> How could I forget? <laughs> um, and there's a lovely small turn by Lily Taylor, the very gifted actress, as her extremely controlling mother. There's always a controlling mother. 
Um, nobody has nice mothers in, in, in neo-noir, let alone L.A. The strength of the movie is not so much in the plotting and certainly not really in the characterizations, but in its portrait of L.A. And I think it will be added to whatever remake of uh, Tom Anderson's Los Angeles plays itself <laughs> comes out. That was in 2003, and it, it needs updating for all kinds of films, but especially for this one. The product, I have to single out the production design, which is quite extraordinary. Yeah, to me, the, big, the great pleasure of this is watching how lovingly and perfectly they've recreated Los Angeles, Los Angeles in 1932. They've got the red car going down the downtown streets. They have beautiful old rooms. They've got great costumes. Of course, they have lots of old cars. Everybody has lots of old cars, but they have really outdone themselves with the look of the streets of LA in 1932. Yes, they really, it really is just lovely. And especially, um, Della Street's costumes, which are uh, just wonderful. And uh, the Angel's Flight trolley looks absolutely magnificent. We see a lot of it in the surrounding stores and, and office buildings have been beautifully uh, redressed. The production designer said he, he was very much influenced by Chinatown when he was making uh, this movie and the strategies that the film um, made to, uh, to represent its period. The lighting is just gorgeous, even when it's murky and dark, which it often is. And actually, even though the show has gotten some negative reviews, I, I liked it more than most, um, perhaps because of its world building again. Um, we said that about LA Confidential a couple of weeks ago, and I think that that's true here too. So with some qualifications, this is a series I'm looking forward to finishing. Yeah, me too. But I, I couldn't overlook uh, the New York Times wonderful TV writer, James Poniewozik, who calls it one more gritty pay cable bummer about a tormented male anti-hero and the tough fellas and sad dames who surround him. And Paniwazek concluded, this is a straight-up period piece, impeccably detailed, with an unimpeachable cast, but with no real rethinking of the kind of story it's telling. Why this character? Why this setting? Why this genre? Forget it, Jake. It's reboot town. <laughs> it's it's great but and the thing about it is is if you are old enough to have been a fan of the first series or even to have watched it there is absolutely no connection between this wreck <laughs> of a man and the stately um, character that uh, Raymond Burr played in the it's impossible to imagine him morphing to that degree PTSD was never so quickly cured <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Perry Mason on HBO has its pleasures, has its problems. Can you recommend something better? I can indeed. And uh, this one is very, very different. It is um, My Brilliant Friend. It's an HBO um, miniseries that's based upon the Neapolitan Quartet, which is four novels by the Italian writer Elena Ferrante. I have read all four novels and some of her others too, and I'm a big fan. Um, it's uh, an Italian production um, that was partly written by uh, Ferrante herself. 
the novel is the novels are extremely interior because they're told by um, one of two friends from a very rough um, neighborhood in Naples. And so I didn't quite see how they were going to adapt this into a television series, but they've done a marvelous job. This is not one of those tales of female friendship that's all about nursing each other through cancer. And it is about, a ve- it's a very intense, almost unbreakable bond, but it's extremely competitive and ambivalent and sometimes hostile. Sometimes they're loyal to each other and sometimes they betray each other. But overall, underneath everything is this very intense compos- uh, competition and it is wonderfully done. And... Their world is this oppressive working class suburb of Naples in the 50s. These are two smart girls that really nobody knows what to do with. And I think the one of the underlying themes is what poverty can do to people. It can make them mean. It can make them predatory. And it, it means for some that they need to escape. And our two girls take different paths but always stay in touch. Yes, and that's a very inter- it has a very interesting take on that because it's almost like she's giving Ferrante is giving the middle finger to Italian neorealism, which almost invariably spawns great solidarity amongst the working class. Here, there is some solidarity, but it is rough and violent and people actually turn on each other, which I think is probably truer to what happens when people uh, have no equality and and they're very desperately poor. Um, It's set in a high-rise, I assume, public housing uh, estate, which is ruled over by a clan... um, of the Solaris mafiosi, essentially, they are, although it's never said. And the episode, I have not finished the series, but I've got through their childhood and their their teenage years. What separates these two girls is not only a very different personality, because Leela is a she's extremely dramatic. The the young woman who plays her as they're growing up has a most extraordinary face. She's much darker than Elena. She's even less privileged uh, than Lenu. Uh, And she creates trouble wherever she goes. She's extremely rebellious to all the, in particular to all the men who are trying not only to get in her pants, but to control her in all sorts of other ways. She is not having any of it. And while Lenu goes on to be a good girl who goes to middle school and high school and later becomes a writer, Elena Ferrante, (laughs) the same name, Leela carves out her own path um, with a designer shoe factory. I haven't watched any more than that, but I cannot recommend this series highly enough. It's very, it makes Naples both beautiful and very rough and very violent. And it's all seen through the eyes of particularly Lenu, but both these girls as they grow up into teenage. It's an extremely patriarchal world. The fathers are just appalling. They're always slapping their kids around and and the, the women are very submissive. But here is a generation that was born in 1944, a little older than me, um, who's not having any of that. They are going to do something different with their lives. And it's just a, a gorgeous, gorgeous series. I loved it. I agree completely. I think my brilliant friend is one of the best things that's ever been on TV. 
It's on HBO, and so is Perry Mason. (laughs) This has been another episode of News You Can Use, TV in the Age of the Virus with Ella Taylor. Ella, thanks for talking with us today. Completely my pleasure, John. It's the same old story. This is Trump Watch. I'm John Wiener, live in L.A. on KPFK and online anytime you want it at trumpwatchpodcast.com. Next up, Black Lives Matter and Sandra Bland's was one of them. It's been five years since Sandra Bland died in a Texas jail after spending three days there. She was only 28 She wasn't shot in bed like Breonna Taylor in Louisville. She wasn't shot in the back like Rayshard Brooks in Atlanta. And she wasn't killed by a cop's knee on her neck like George Floyd in Minneapolis. What happened to Sandra Bland? Debbie Nathan found some answers. Her powerful and moving report was the cover story in The Nation magazine in 2016. Debbie Nathan reports on immigration, race, and sexual politics. She's covered Texas for many years, including her award-winning work for This American Life. We spoke about Sandra Bland in 2016. I started with the two dozen videos Sandra Bland had posted on her Facebook page. She called them Sandy Speaks. I asked Debbie Nathan to tell us about Sandy Speaks. Well, Sandy was speaking through her smartphone videos. Uh, She used to get into her car when she went out for lunch from her work, and she would talk about things that she was thinking about. And during the months when she was doing these videos, she was mostly thinking about the same issues that Black Lives Matter is thinking about. But I want to say also that she had more than videos. Um, Sometimes more than once a day she would post, you know, the way people do on Facebook. She put these videos on Facebook. But she also had postings where she linked to articles and she just kind of talked the way people do. And those are also equally interesting. Very few people have read them. In those uh, postings, she often really implied things about her life that even went beyond sometimes what she had on the videos. And there was that greeting that she opened her posts with. She did. She would say, Good morning, my beautiful kings and queens, or good afternoon, my beautiful kings and queens. And she said that about all of us. We were all her kings and queens, and I'm white. She was a very ecumenical person. So Sandra Bland, we're calling her Sandy, is that right? That's what she called herself. That's what everyone who knew her called her. So I guess I am doing it myself. Okay, I'll join you. Sandy went to a mostly white high school, I learned from your piece in The Nation, in suburban Chicago. Sounds like she was great in high school. She was. She was a very good student. She was an honor student. Um, She joined just about every club that there was. Uh, She was much beloved um, by students and by her teachers, even some of the teachers who were not so used to maybe a style of, you know, she was a very opinionated, feisty young woman, and there were very few blacks at the school. So I think that she navigated being black at a practically all-white school in a very brilliant way. And your report, she was the only black cheerleader, and she played trombone in the band. 
And for college, she got a music scholarship to Prairie View A&M University, which I understand is near Houston, a historically black school. Sounds like she was great in college. She was. She majored in animal science, which might sound a little unusual because she was a big city girl. But Prairie View is an A&M in the same way that the big, there's a big agricultural and mechanical college in Texas that everyone knows about, A&M. Prairie View was the black A&M. Prairie View was founded when black people were not allowed to go to white colleges. It's a post-Civil War black college. So, you know, there's like this big agricultural component there. And um, she got interested in animal science. And she told many people that she wanted to be an FDA inspector. Then she graduated in 2009 and, and started looking for a job. 2009, that was right after the economic collapse of fall 2008. What was it like for a black 22-year-old looking for a job in 2009? It was terrible. It was just, you know, black young black graduates, BAs, were many times more likely to be unemployed than white graduates. Black women had it even worse. They had it worse than black men. A a white high school female graduate during the last few years has had a better chance of getting a job than a young black woman with a BA degree. And it hasn't really gotten any better for young black women. And then Sandy Bland started getting stopped for traffic violations. What was her experience? There's no income tax in Texas, and so a lot of municipalities and the state itself raise money by putting all kinds of um, charges onto traffic tickets. And, I mean, they're just every charge you can imagine. You know, there's charges for treating sick people. There are charges for um, having increased surveillance at the border. There are charges, all kinds of things. Um, So that creates this great incentive to stop people and to ticket them. And she was constantly being ticketed. This is a huge issue in Texas, and black people are stopped and ticketed more often than white people. All the statistics show that. So she was stopped quite a bit, but actually I interviewed friends of hers who had the same experience. It's a very common experience in Texas. And how much money did she end up owing on her traffic tickets? Well, you know, funny that you should ask that because I think everybody wants to focus on Texas. She owed several hundred dollars in Texas, but later, I just have to say this, she went back to Illinois, and it was even worse in Illinois because Illinois does the same thing. In fact, lots of municipalities collect money from traffic tickets to put in their general fund. So not only did she have hundreds of dollars in Texas in traffic tickets, but when she went to Illinois, she had thousands of dollars. Again, the same thing in Illinois. All of the Department of Transportation statistics show that black people, particularly in the county, the suburban county where she was, are many times more likely to be ticketed than white people. I learned from your piece that in Texas, or at least in in Houston, if you can't pay your traffic tickets, you go to jail. And Sandy Bland went to jail for how long? Well, she was in jail sitting down, I think they call it sitting down her traffic tickets or sitting out her traffic tickets for about three days because she was in a county where she got $100 a day to do that. There are other counties where you only get $50 a day. And that, again, that's like sort of the the work of poor people is to be in jail paying their traffic tickets sitting there. This was the Harris County Jail 
in Texas. County jails are usually horrible places. What's what's the Harris County Jail like? Yeah, that's Houston. Um, it's the big jail in Houston, and it's got, I don't know, 9,000 people in it on any given day, and it's really, really a bad place. It's been investigated in the last five years or so, which would have been the time she was there by the DOJ, and they found that, you know, it's a violent place. Um, it's a neglectful place. It's a filthy place. It's like physically filthy. So, you know, it must have been a very, very unpleasant experience for this middle-class girl, particularly, to be sitting in that jail. Some of the traffic stops also led to marijuana charges. That's right. Um, Also in Texas, and particularly in Harris County, which is Houston, uh, black people, even though they have pretty much the same rate of smoking weed as everybody else in the United States, are far more prone to be stopped and she was stopped on traffic tickets. And then there was one time when, after her car was impounded, actually, um, it was a DUI. She was coming back from a party. She had a little too much to drink. They impounded her car. And while they were impounding it, they saw a little baggie with just a tiny, tiny bit of marijuana in it. Um, in most states, you're not going to have too much happen to you. But Texas is very harsh. And um, she was slapped with a misdemeanor charge. And she spent 30 days locked up. So when she got out of jail in Texas, she went back to Illinois. And what happened there? She had the same problem. She could not get a good job. She was working all the time, but she was just working temporary. And she was working at places like McDonald's. She was having the same problems with being stopped and ticketed. And um, she did have a um, godmother who was very supportive of her and who apparently she had an easy time speaking with, um, more than she did maybe with her family. And her godmother uh, unfortunately got sick with cancer and she died. And I think that that was probably Sandy's real support. And her, her godmother died. And clearly that was traumatic for her. And somewhere in there, Sandy also had a miscarriage. Is that right? She, according to some records that have emerged, she reported to a doctor that she'd had what's called an ectopic pregnancy. It's not a miscarriage. It's much more traumatic physically than a miscarriage. She had a pregnancy, she reported, that lands instead of in your uterus in your fallopian tubes, and it can't go anywhere there except to kill you if the embryo is not removed surgically. It's a very dangerous condition. So that was another traumatic event for her. And she told people around this time that she was depressed. What do we know about that? She had a friend who I spoke with who told me that she did mention this to him. And he was a little bit taken aback because he told me that this is not really talked about in African-American culture and it's not really dealt with, you know, in the way of saying, oh, you should go get therapy. If you read her her Facebook, and if you watch those videos, she was speaking about depression. She was speaking about her depression. She had a couple videos where she told her listeners that she was depressed, and she said, this is a very big problem in black culture. We don't talk about this, and we really need to. It's a very serious problem. She um, linked in her Facebook postings to articles that were emerging from what, they, from what are called womanist psychotherapists, um, black feminists who are dealing with women's issues in therapy and mental health, you know, really discussing this problem, the fact that more black people than white people are suffering from depression and women have it worse and women are, you know, their, their um, level of treatment 
is just they're not getting treatment, partly because they can't afford it, health insurance is still not adequate, and partly because the culture um, really mitigates against it, as I've said, against um, defining it this way and getting treatment. And she posted about that more than once. So it's very sad that you don't see a response to these videos or to these posts on her Facebook page. You don't see people saying, oh, what can I do to help? Let me refer you to my therapist. You know, there's nothing like that. It's like everyone is pretty interested in responding to her posts about police violence, you know, against black people. But when it comes to her discussing her own problems, there's a kind of silence. It's as though she's not speaking. It's almost like people aren't hearing. She's trying to speak, but people are not hearing. She's served time in jail. She's depressed. She's lost her godmother. And she applies for a job back at Prairie View in Houston, her old school. What happens then? She applied for a job and she got a call or a communication from Prairie View. And they said, we'd like to interview you tomorrow. She just got in her car, put some clothes in the back seat, and she left. She didn't know whether she'd have a job or not, but she went to the interview. She had actually applied for three jobs. And um, one of those jobs was really up her alley. It was a professional job for somebody with a BA, and it had to do with agriculture. One of the jobs was just a low-paying clerical job that was only going to last for a few weeks. So she interviewed for these various jobs, and she was hired for the clerical job. It, it was a very, you know, a very tenuous situation. It was only going to last, like I said, you know, for less than a month, and it wasn't going to pay very much. But I think I can, you know, I think it's easy to remember that feeling when you're that age. Like, I've got to get out of here. I've got to go someplace that I love. I've got to try to make a new life for myself. I don't know how I'm going to do it, but like somehow I'll just try to make it work. She went down and had, you know, she got the interview. She got tentatively hired, but Prairie View is actually a very strict place and a conservative place when it comes to the box. Sandy was a victim of the box. She had numerous misdemeanors, and it's clear from her Facebook that that it hounded her when she applied for jobs, that she had to tell her uh, when she applied that she had a uh, record. And she got a letter with her hire letter. It was a tentative hire letter saying, now we have to check your background, to do a background check. And if we find that you have a current criminal record, we can rescind this offer. And so that's the situation that she was in when she was brutalized by Brian Incendia, the state trooper. So the same day that she signed the papers for this new job offer, she got pulled over again by the police in another traffic stop. Tell us about that. She was turning in her car outside of the campus onto a main road that goes through this town. And there was a a trooper behind her, a state trooper. And um, he apparently speeded up and she interpreted that as some kind of an emergency move that he was trying to go chase somebody ahead of her, she said. And so without signaling, she went into the right lane. She changed lanes. And then he stopped her because she had changed lanes. And I mean, in a way, like being from Texas myself and actually being from that part of Texas, I'm, I almost think she was sort of like the Emmett Till of this situation. She responded in a matter-of-fact way, not a friendly way to the, to the trooper, but certainly not an uncivil way by any means. And she didn't sort of do that, oh, officer, oh, I'm so sorry. 
which really is what you have to do there. And she had out-of-state plates. And I think that um, this officer just decided that she wasn't being deferential enough. And he started making demands on her. And they weren't even legal demands. You know, he said, would you mind putting out your cigarette? And she said, why do I have to do that? And she asked about 16 questions, which he never answered. And instead, the thing just went from zero to 100 in a confrontation that ended up with her being shoved to the ground, just really manhandled. I mean, it's it's so disturbing to see the autopsy and see the scratches on her back and, and the leaf, the little piece of leaf stuck into her back. It's clear that he pushed her down and really brutalized her. And then he arrested her for assaulting him. And that's how she ended up in the jail with a felony charge. And they put her in solitary. I, I don't understand why that happened. It happened because she had a felony assault charge on a public officer. And once that happens, there's a flow chart at the jail. And, um, you know, they put your name at the top and they just sort of run these little arrows from, you know, what did you do and where does that go in the flow chart to which cell you should be in. So she was classified as what's called medium assaultive. And it's a little tiny jail. So there actually were several women in a less secure room, who some of who were um, sitting down their traffic tickets, <laughs> and they were playing cards and telling jokes and just trying to get through this. That's where she should have been, but she was put in this, in this other cell, which that weekend just didn't have any other assaultive people. So it wasn't like they said, we're putting you in solitary. They put her in a room that just that weekend was solitary. She was all by herself for two and a half days. Some of our friends, you know, think she didn't commit suicide, as the police reported. You've looked into this pretty carefully. What have you concluded? I have looked into this very, very carefully. It would have taken a conspiracy of several people in that jail, including the administration, to kill this woman and leave absolutely no evidence of violence. It is so beyond the pale of probability or possibility. You know, and I have to say also that in order to even imagine this, you would have to imagine that the guards, half of whom, or maybe more than half of whom, were black and Latino themselves, were incredibly, incredibly brilliant, that they were brilliant, psychopathic conspirators. And I find it disturbing that 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 idea of racism, that, that that's what we should focus on when we think about racism. I mean, you know, racism is a series of institutions and they affect millions of people as we've looked at all of these institutions that affected Sandy, the, the traffic stops, the marijuana bus, all of these things that affect so many millions of young black people. That's where we should be focusing, not on psychopathic conspiracy theories in a jail where there's no evidence. So what can we say about what happened to Sandra Bland? I think Sandra was killed, but not literally in that cell that day. I think that she died a thousand cuts in the same way that so many other people do, so many other black people do on a day-to-day -day basis. The the insults that they suffer through racist institutions. That's what we learn from her death. And I think that the other thing that we learn is that 
you know, if we're thinking about black deaths, we have to think about something bigger, which is black lives. That when we say black lives matter, we're talking about black lives in their pain, in their imperfection, in their trouble. So we can say that black lives matter, and hers was one of them. Debbie Nathan's report on the life and death of Sandra Bland was the cover story in The Nation in April 2016. We spoke with her about it four years ago. Well, that's it for today's Trump Watch. I want to thank our engineer, D'Angelo Jones, our producer, Renee Reynolds. As always, we thank Ry Cooter for our theme music, Mambo Sinuendo. Hey, Trump Watchers, if you missed part of this show or of any of our recent shows, listen online anytime you want to trumpwatchpodcast.com. Trump Watch returns next week at the same time on the same station with more talk about what Trump is actually doing, not just what he's tweeting. I'm John Wiener. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.